Hey everybody, this is Aubrey Chavez from Faith Matters. In early 2021, in the wake of January 6th, McKay Coppins contacted Mitt Romney with a bold request. He wanted to write a biography about him. But McKay had stipulations. Not only would he have to have full access to the senator, he also wanted to retain full editorial control. And to his surprise, Romney agreed. And shortly, he'd send him stacks of journal entries, emails, and texts. They met over 45 times over the coming years for lengthy interviews. And McKay also interviewed many of Romney's closest friends and family and colleagues. That unprecedented access has now turned into a book called Romney, A Reckoning, which just debuted at number three overall on the New York Times bestsellers list. We hope that this interview would offer a unique take on this subject, and we spent some real time on questions of integrity and culpability and faith. McKay brought not only deep insight into the psyche of one of the most fascinating and in some cases polarizing political figures of our time, but he also brought really clear-eyed discernment of his own. He helped us work through some other fascinating questions. What does it take to live on the edge of inside, and what does it cost? Is it possible to stave off cynicism while remaining pragmatic about having impact for good? McKay Coppins is a staff writer at The Atlantic, where he covers politics, religion, and national affairs. He's a former visiting fellow at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics and has won the Aldo Beckman Award from the White House Correspondents Association for his coverage of the Trump presidency and the Wilbur Award for religion journalism. This was an incredibly fun interview for us to record, and we're so incredibly grateful that McKay took the time to meet us in our studio for this one. We really think that you're going to enjoy this. Well, McKay, thank you so much for being here. It's truly an honor to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to do this. Yeah, we are too. And I will just start by saying I devoured this book. Um, I also <laughs> devoured the uh, the excerpt that you that you posted in the Atlantic. Um, what was that? Five or six weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I tweet. I, so I've had a Twitter account since 2009. I tweet maybe <laughs> once every three or four years. <laughs> I I tweeted out the Atlantic article. Oh my! Because gosh. it was just. I mean, I could not stop. Wow. It was like a. And not just the story, the story, and but the story is obviously so compelling. But the writing, I just need to pay you oh, that compliment. Thank you. You have a you have a special gift, and it's um it's really meaningful. I think I mean obviously on a nationwide scale at this point, but but for me to our community. Oh, so yeah. thank you. Wow, that's very very nice of you, and I'm honored to be one of your every three years tweets. That's uh, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I thought that would signal appropriately how strongly yeah. I I feel about this. Um, I wanted to start by asking you. Sort of like a why why Mitt Romney and why now? Especially because in in some ways this story is still unfolding. So mm-hmm. how did this how did this get started? Yeah, well, so I had covered Mitt Romney for a long time. Um, I covered his presidential campaign as a young reporter. It was kind of my first job, um, and then I profiled him when he got to the Senate for the Atlantic. And so I sort of had gotten to know him as a reporter, um, but you know, I, I think part of it was like. There was always this kind of mystery to me about what was going on inside Mitt Romney's head, because as a presidential candidate, he always seemed so kind of controlled and disciplined Mm -hmm. and he stuck to his talking points and he gave the same stump speech four times a day. I mean, I could recite it from memory (laughs) by the end of that campaign. I was like dreaming about it, but I always like kind of wanted to know what he was thinking about. You know, I remember a reporter telling me once, you know, I, I think maybe Mitt Romney just doesn't have very much interiority, like mm-hmm. it's all surface level. And I sort of didn't think that was true, but I also just had no idea. So what happened was he was in the Senate for a few years and then January 6th happened and he it was kind of almost a near death experience for him because he very nearly ran headlong into the mob that had broken into the Capitol and uh, and was steered away from a Capitol police officer. But 
it it almost seemed like he was going through something after that. And I had this sense that he was kind of newly introspective and taking stock of, you know, all sorts of things, what was happening to the country, what had happened to his party and also his own career. And as a like writer, that's kind of the perfect headspace for yeah. your your subject to be in. And so I approached him just a few weeks after January 6th and said, I think you would be a great subject for a biography. I think you have a lot of stories to tell. Um, and, you know, <laughs> but I said, I only want to do it if you're going to be fully candid. Yeah. And I think he almost took a little offense to that because the implication <laughs> was that I didn't think he yeah. would be fully <laughs> candid. And luckily for me, he responded by like, being extremely candid <laughs> yeah. yeah which surprised me like i mean you and you write that you not just candid like you you say your stipulation is that you want full editorial control like yes. he has no vetoes right, right? And, and it feels like in a moment where you're under a lot of scrutiny and a lot of pressure you're i, I feel like personally that makes you more defensive and it makes you it makes you like tighten up and mm -hmm. and you and you want to you want to defend everything you've ever done and it, it feels like this book really is a genuine reckoning he's opening up and it's almost like therapy. He's really he's really thinking about the the biggest decision points throughout his life and wondering if he maybe if he did something wrong. Yeah. And and so open to exploring that in such a public way. Were I you know. surprised that he said yes? I was definitely surprised that he said yes to my conditions because yeah, the yeah, conditions yeah. were like I want all the access that I would get if this was a fully authorized biography, but <clears throat> I want full editorial control. And yeah. that's kind of a ridiculous ask for somebody yeah. who's still in office, you know, especially. Sometimes you'll you'll have situations where public officials or prominent people will give all their notes and journals to a writer and say, you can write this when I'm gone, right? Write it when I'm dead. Yeah. Um, he's not only not dead, he's still in office. <laughs> and he just gave me, I mean, I remember sitting in church one Sunday and getting a text from him saying, hey, check your email, McKay. I sent you something that might be interesting uh, before our next meeting. And this was just a few weeks into the process. And it was just hundreds of pages of his personal journals. Wow. I hadn't even asked for them. And I later found out he hadn't even reread them before giving them to wow. me. And so I think that signaled to me a level of kind of disclosure and willingness to be vulnerable that, first of all, is almost unheard of with, uh, you know, mm -hmm. among politicians, but also meant that he really was taking it seriously. Like, I think the way what you said, Aubrey, about like, therapy, I kind of, <laughs> I, I don't have a ton of experience with therapy, but I, the, describing the process sometimes to people who do, they'd be like, that sounds like you're in <laughs> intense therapy, where he's like, really as like wrestling with difficult questions and being vulnerable. And, uh, you know, and, and it was messy. Like sometimes he would kind of uh, seem to kind of confess his complicity and what the party had become. And then the next meeting, he would sort of walk it back and mm. become defensive. And mm. and it was really like a kind of push and pull throughout uh, our, our two years together. But I give him a ton of credit for being willing to do this because I think it signals a lot of humility on his part and also a certain level of confidence because you know, I don't I have to say, I don't know that I would be comfortable just giving all of my journals Same. to a writer, I was you know, or all my emails yeah. or texts like <laughs> I, I don't know what's in those like yeah. I, I, you know, but I think on some basic level, he feels like, yes, he's made mistakes and, you know, he's he's compromised at times. But I think he knows that there aren't like deep skeletons in his closet that are going to, you know, embarrass him or ruin his life. And, you know, he just yeah. gave it all to me. Wow. There's so much so much to talk about there. And I, I want to. Well, maybe 
maybe we could start circling around a word that was sort of like echoing for me throughout throughout the book, and that's integrity. Mm. It seems like Mitt. Like, should we call him Mitt or should we call him Romney? Or? I, I I started out on the book tour trying brother? to call him Romney, okay. <laughs> brother Romney, brother Romney. <laughs> but I for this podcast, but I keep slipping into Mitt. Let's just call him brother Romney, and, <laughs> and that'll be great. Okay. okay, if you slip into Mitt, I may slip into Mitt. <laughs> um, but it's so interesting. It seems like his definition of integrity. Um, which is not explicit in the book, but you sort of get a sense for it, is maybe really different than, um, you know, Washington, D.C.'s general mm. definition of integrity. W- one being on the D.C. side or in politics, um, that ideological purity and integrity are mm. sort of the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so, like, if you're not 100 percent on this side, you're actually a sellout. Yeah. Mitt Romney seems to see it a little bit differently. How would you how would you describe yeah. what how the way he sees integrity? That's a great insight. I it, it was one of the things I kind of figured out about him through over the course of interviewing him and people around him who had worked for his campaigns and who were on his staff. Like he he got so many, you know, throughout his career, he was always tagged as a flip-flopper. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like he doesn't have any real convictions. Yeah. And uh he changes his position all the time. And he we talk a lot about that. And we, you know, I write about that in the book where he did feel compelled throughout his uh throughout his career at various times to take positions that he wasn't sure he totally agreed with. But the thing to understand about that is that he's really just not an ideologue. Like he doesn't, the way his mind works, he thinks that there are a number of reasonable positions that you can take on any given issue. And so, um, you know, in, 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 when with his staff, he would sometimes debate various issues and he would often end up taking one stance and then argue against himself because mm-hmm. he can kind of see all the reasonable arguments. Right. And so I think the way and he might slightly disagree with his characterization, but the way that I see it is I think that his thought process often was if taking one uh, I, reasonable position over another will help advance my political career or get me closer to the White House. There's nothing wrong with that, you mm-hmm. know, Um and I think there's something to that if you if you genuinely don't have really strong ideological convictions. Now, he does have strong convictions in other realms of his life, certainly spiritual, uh, family, and on kind of more basic level, like he believes in the Constitution. He believes in American democracy and pluralism and things like that. But on the, the kind of left-right axis, the typical debates around policy, I just don't think that those are the things that are core to his identity. And so that's why he, he often comes across as, you know, a quote-unquote flip-flopper because he does I, – I think you're right. He doesn't tie his integrity to unwavering political convictions. Yeah. Well, and it almost seemed like maybe he was defining – his integrity as as like a like he that's what was compelling him to get a fuller picture he would take meetings that offended people and it seemed like it was in a genuine effort to get more information the fact that he even wanted to hear witnesses in the during the impeachment just the fact that he was open to hearing another side was enough for people to feel like he was a sellout Mm -hmm. and it did seem like that was something that came up over and over throughout his life that that he wasn't threatened by the idea of another side and that he might change his mind and 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 that concept alone that idea that you could change your mind for some people seemed so infuriating and it, and it yes. was interesting that i think he he felt like he was doing that out of integrity and and just right. entertaining the idea was the whole was was the well, problem for who, who said it was it thoreau who said foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds maybe mm-hmm. it was emerson i don't remember but um 
I think that he believes that like Mm -hmm. there there actually is a lot of value in just changing your mind sometimes. Right. And he has, you know, some of his changes in positions have been kind of calculating and some of them have just been like he got new information or started to see the world in a different way. And I think you're right that we are in an era of politics where that just is not valued, you know, like being willing to see issues from a lot of different sides and invite more evidence and being willing to kind of change your mind authentically is just not a path to political success in either party right now. Yeah. You know, let let me ask about one specifically. So um, and I remember this um, being a topic of discussion in the 2012 election, but uh, abortion. He mm. had cha- he had at least somewhat changed his position. I from think the that's time the that- issue. He's mo- he, like, he he will most cop to having changed his position over his career. Yeah, and it, and the w- when you really dived into it, did you see it as one of those that you're describing? Where well, there are a variety of you know there are a variety of valid positions to take, or was this politically motivated? And now he's looking back on that and saying, "Wow, I I have the moral clarity now mm-hmm. that I was." you know, that I was rationalizing. I think he will cop to rationalizing now. I mean, he, mm-hmm. he actually told me um, in his very first campaign in 1994 for Senate in Massachusetts, he was running against Ted Kennedy. His consultants basically told him, you have no way of winning in Massachusetts unless you're pro-choice. Now, he wasn't a an outspoken, uh, you know, conservative on the issue, but he was personally opposed to to abortion for moral and religious reasons. But he talked me through like the painstaking process mm-hmm. of getting to the point where he could take a pro-choice position. And, you know, he it, it involved pouring over statements by Mormon leaders yeah. and, uh, you know, Mormon scripture. And he, he even said, and I write about this in the book, he found, you know, there's he had found a statement where a church leader said that abortion was like unto murder. And he said, but he didn't say it was murder. Mm. And it, it was really interesting to see how his mind worked. But he said, by the time I got to the end of that process, and I, I basically, his position was kind of tortured. It was not mm. necessarily pro-choice, but it was, I'm not going to change abortion policy, mm-hmm. which effectively meant he was pro-choice uh, at that time. But uh, he said, you know, I by the end of that process, I had rationalized so effectively in my mind uh, that I could have passed a lie detector test. And, you know, I really believed that this was what I believed. Right. And and he was like, but what he said, and I think this is such a good insight, he said, that's the point of rationalization. It's so that you don't have to live with it. You don't have to live with the the compromise you're making. And that that kind of became a theme of the book Mm -hmm. because not not just because he has rationalized throughout his career, but because I think everyone in politics does this all the time. And I think it's an epidemic and it's a big reason why we've gotten to this point in American politics that I think is kind of perilous. I think it's the road to this point has just been paved with a thousand small moral compromises that political leaders have convinced themselves are not moral compromises. Yeah. Okay. So- that is so interesting. Do you, do you want to? No, you. Okay, okay, because what I was reading was it feels like they are, they always moralize it. The straw man for rationalization to me is your better, better angels fighting against the devil on your shoulder. Mm. And there's always this, should I do the right thing or do I give in? And this is about my ambition. And it feels like in every situation, they made it a moral dilemma. And you could genuinely talk yourself into believing that the right thing to do would be to get in the room. Mm-hmm. And so let's find the loopholes and do the mental gymnastics because I'm going to have more influence for good if I can be, if I have a yeah. seat at the table. And yep. and that seems genuine. And I think there's a, I mean, that's a really interesting thing to wrestle with. Like, are they right? Because if everybody, everybody with the most integrity quits, 
on it because they cancel everyone who's compromising right. them. Who's in charge here? I know. It's such a difficult question. Somebody <laughs> at the, I was at a book event in Salt Lake City last night and somebody was making this point. They were like, I get why he wants to retire. I get why he wants to kind of get out of the like unseemly business of politics, yeah. especially at this moment. And especially as he's kind of become a pariah in his party. But like, do we want people who are authentically wrestling with their conscience yeah. to just throw up their hands and walk away? You know, it's a it, it's, it's a really hard question. Like the answer, of course, is no. And part of the reason I wrote this book is that I I hope that future political leaders could take a lesson from Mitt Romney's experience because he he will now say, you know, that that for all the rationalizing he's done, um, you know, he now realizes that sacrificing your your principles at the altar of ambition isn't worth it. And you'll get to the end of your career and realize, you know, uh, why did I do that? Like the, the, mm-hmm. winning that one more election wasn't worth it. But but I, I kind of don't think they have to be mutually exclusive. Like, I feel like we should be able to expect of our political leaders that they do what's right. At least some of the yes. time they prioritize their conscience over reelection. And I think we have become very cynical as a country about politics, especially in the last like seven or eight years, where all of us have kind of internalized this idea that, oh, they're all snakes. They're all terrible. Just vote for whoever you agree with. But don't expect them to be good people. And mm-hmm. look, I'm a political journalist in Washington, D.C. I get it. Like, I have seen a, a lot of cynicism among my the subjects, the people I've, I write about. But, like, I don't think we should kind of give in to that cynicism because it just creates permission for everybody to just, yeah. you know, totally bracket questions of right and wrong. And, you know? and do you think that it's just sort of we society that have given into the cynicism or is, well, I guess my question is from all the reporting that you've done in Washington, DC, like is Mitt Romney actually an outlier in the sense that he is framing these issues as moral dilemmas in his own, in his own mind? Uh, mm-hmm. Or, or is everyone doing that to some extent, or is it just a totally cynical raw pursuit of power mm-hmm. for the most part? I think it's really a mix of all of those. Like, yeah. I think there are some people who are like sociopathic, like Machiavellis, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. There, there is some percentage of Congress that is that. I, 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 yeah. I've seen it, right? <clears throat> I think a lot of people entered politics with real, genuine ideals and principles and over time saw those erode and be learned that cynicism and have kind of rationalized to the point where they don't have to wrestle anymore. Mm. And then there are still people like Mitt Romney who still wrestle, right? Yeah. And I think what you want is the people who are just still actively wrestling yeah. with it, right? You just, it, it's not that they're always going to do the right thing, but you just want people who have like the presence of a, a functioning conscience that, <laughs> and they're still wrestling with right and wrong, you know? Um, but, yeah, I, yeah. you know, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's a hard question because, um, I don't think that most people in politics want to believe that they're they're bad people, right? Yeah. Like that most of them have convinced themselves and they live in their algorithmically tailored, you know, me- media yeah. bubbles and they're surrounded by staffs and supporters that are telling them they're always right. And so the, it, the, all the incentives flow toward not reckoning. Right? Yeah. Could we okay, and I just want to dive in a little bit more on that on that one uh 1994 um, was it senatorial or gubernatorial? Senate, Senate, Senate campaign, uh, yeah. Um, where he was warned, like, if you don't take a pro-choice position, 
then you can't win. The thing is, that was probably true, right? So would Mitt Romney in 2023, and I know, you, you, you know, you can't speak <laughs> for him, but based on your sense, is he looking back on that and saying, I should not have compromised because the butterfly effect is so great. Like he, he would, he truly would not have had the same impact that mm -hmm. he's had over the next. Well, he didn't win years. that race though, to be fair. Oh, uh, he didn't yeah. end up winning anyway. That's though he kind of still yeah, yeah. had a pro choice position when he became governor. So the point stands. I know yeah, what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. That's a good question. So would, would he do it differently? Right. Yeah. And th that was kind of the question that hung over mm -hmm. our two years of interviews. Like, would you take this back? Do you regret doing yes. some of these things, right? Because he can still recite the rationalizations and he's self-aware <laughs> about the fact that he's rationalizing. And sometimes he'll slip into still rationalizing, you know, like it, it's it's complicated. Mm -hmm. But um, I think there are some things he would take back. I think there are some things that he's, he, he feels like, well, you know, uh, I did what I had to do to win. But he, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, honestly, the abortion one is 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 interesting because I think he fully acknowledges that that wasn't totally his, uh, it, it wasn't totally true to himself. Right. Mm -hmm. With a lot of the other ones, I think like you were saying, Aubrey, he, he just doesn't like, he doesn't have super strong convictions about mm -hmm. all these policy points. So he, it, it, you know, he doesn't feel like he was consciously changing. Yeah. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, I think he still, uh, would, you know, when he gives advice to young people who want to go into politics, he always tells them, like, don't, you know, don't sell yourself out, right? Yeah. Like, try to jealously guard your, your principles and ideals because everything in politics is going to try to get you to, mm -hmm. to, to change. And, and so I think, it, you know, with that kind of advice, he recognizes in some ways that, uh, he would rather have been true to himself throughout yeah. The, yeah. the process. Do you feel like some sort of, heuristic did emerge though because it seems in the moment that's just not very clear usually like under mm -hmm. pressure it's feeling like oh it's a little bit it's a little bit hazier so did do you feel and i know that that's the that's really is his genuine sentiment like that that ideals should trump ambition period mm -hmm. but when you're in the moment and under pressure is there some way that he has found to recognize you know i'm rationalizing and i'm going to regret this <laughs> well later? i asked it's a good <laughs> so i asked him this question once i said you know and and it was framed around his impeachment vote when he he was the yeah. only Republican to vote to to convict Trump, um, and I I asked him like would you have taken that same lonely principled stand if it was thirty years earlier in your career, yeah. and he actually like paused to think about it and he said um, I I don't know he was like I I'll be honest I don't know if I can answer that because he says I recognize now in myself uh, a, an instinct to rationalize things mm -hmm. that are in my self-interest that I didn't totally recognize in myself 30 years ago, right? Wow. And I thought that was remarkable self-awareness and honesty on his part. Um, but it is a good question. How do you, how do all of us recognize mm -hmm. that in ourselves? Because we all do this. And yes. I, I feel like I should always like make this admission <laughs> at some point in these interviews that the reason I was so interested in this, this theme of, of his life and of the book is because I know I do this mm. all the time myself. Like, I think we, you know, I feel like we all are sort of 
especially interested in and sometimes judgmental of the sins that we commit ourselves, right? Yeah. And I think in other people, yes, like you, exactly. Yeah. Like you recognize it yes. in other people, and you you and so I think part of the reason I I'm, I was drawn to it is like I, we all rationalize. I know that I rationalize things all the time. I talk myself into like, well, no, this is it's for, for the greater good. For the greater is, good, yes. You know, yeah. it's 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 good in the long run. Um, and I don't know how like the the trick is really like seeing yourself do that in real time and yeah. being aware of it. And I think it just takes a lot of self-awareness, a lot of humility, um, but also a certain amount of long-term thinking, which is really difficult because in the moment, like you said, you can always rationalize, mm-hmm. you know, be, what the, the, the thing that is easiest, yeah. but you have to, if you start to think more, like, how am I going to think about this decision a year from now, five years from now? 25 years from now it, it can have a clarifying effect yeah. you know yeah wow. that um yeah. the speech that he gave on the senate floor um at the time of the impeachment vote was really i i mean to me it was really powerful um the unique moment that that always strikes me is when right at the beginning when he says my i'm a profoundly religious person my faith is at the heart of who i am mm. and then he gets sort of choked up and has yeah. to take a, a pause what, why do you think that statement evoked such an emotional response for him um well it was in the context of uh this really kind of agonizing process he had gone through in deciding whether to vote to convict and i have his journal entries that he took throughout that period and i can tell you every entry was just tortured like Mm -hmm. he wanted so badly to just vote with the rest of his party to acquit trump because he just knew it would be easier Mm -hmm. right and he he was very aware of the consequences of breaking with his party in this high stakes moment. You know, he was worried about, um, you know, his sons losing uh, business or getting audited by the, you know, Trump federal government. He was worried about um, what his own physical safety, you know, whether people would come after him. Um, but he just felt like he couldn't live with himself if he didn't do what he he thought was right in that case. And he thought Trump was guilty, so he voted to convict. But one of the things he kept coming back to, and, he, and you know, he prayed about this. Like it was it was a real a spiritual process. He was reading and reading scriptures throughout it. He was, uh, you know, he, he kept thinking about the hymn, uh, do what is right, let the consequence <laughs> follow. Yeah. And um, but but he also kept thinking about how at the beginning of the Senate trial, they swore an oath before God, the senators, to be impartial jurors in this in this trial. And he was so frustrated that he seemed like he was the only Republican senator who was taking that oath seriously. You know, he looked around and everyone in the caucus basically said, this isn't a real trial. It's a political process. It's a sham. We're just going to act like politicians and protect our guy. Right. And he was trying to, like, parse the evidence and listen to the arguments on both sides and take Mm -hmm. it really seriously. And he says it's because, you know, taking this oath before God is something he takes really seriously. And I mean, people of his faith recognize the power of taking oaths and covenants, you know, and I think that on some level, that was the backdrop for this whole thing. So when he went up there and said, my faith is is profoundly important to me, I think he got choked up because he was sort of overwhelmed by you know, that that was the thing that was powering him to do this mm-hmm. incredibly unpopular thing that he was about to do. And I think he felt in that moment like um, 
he, you know, he kind of almost had, you know, he had God's blessing, right? Mm -hmm. It's not that he felt like everybody had to do this and he tried to be understanding of people who disagreed with him, but he felt like he was doing what he thought was right. And I think that he was kind of moved by that. Yeah. You've done, you've done some really powerful writing on Mormonism as well. I'm curious if you, and obviously there are already echoes of this in, in what you're saying here, but is there, uh, is there something, are you saying unique about Mitt's Mormonism mm. as opposed to just his more general Christianity that led him to, you know, maybe take that, like you said, take that oath more seriously. And this is not yeah. to denigrate other religions mm. by any means no, or, no, no. or American Christianity in general. No, it's a, I mean, so, I, you know, I've written about how from the very beginning, Mormonism was sort of entangled in the American project, right? Mm -hmm. Like the stories that we told as a people that our leaders told, um, were, were often tied up in like, um, in, in America, right? The religion was founded in America. It, we, you know, were taught that the founding documents of, of America were divinely inspired. Um, and, and I think Mitt Romney believes that, like he believes that America uh, and, and it's, you know, constitution and it's, you know, democratic society are, are divine blessings, right? And so he, he really feels that in his core. Like I talked earlier about how he doesn't have a lot of super strong convictions about policy, but this is something he has a very strong belief in. And so mm -hmm. I do think there is something unique about, um, you know, the, the intersection between Mormonism and American exceptionalism that I think is, is provocative in some ways. And some people, you know, think it could, it can be toxic. But I think in the, in circumstances like this, where you are kind of on the brink of a constitutional crisis, it can be really useful to have people who in, in power who have like religious belief in the, the sanctity mm -hmm. of the constitution. Oh. And I think that that was a big part. That's of it. so yeah. interesting. Um, throughout the book, you, you mean, you get this, the arc of, of Mitt Romney's life and you, you hear a lot about his relationship with his dad and his childhood and just sort of this general work ethic of the Romney family. But you also see this, this, and you see, you know, his transformation over, over his career and, and this real thoughtfulness about his own legacy in life. But you're also seeing this really interesting transformation happening with the GOP generally. Mm -hmm. And at some point <clears throat> you write, or he says, that he's worried that the GOP is shedding thoughtful people. Yeah. <clears throat> and it seems like at that point, as a person observing this, he's deciding, do you stay and wrestle and it's really dirty, messy, or do you just, yeah. do you walk away and, and or schism? And it seems like that's always the, that's always the option. Like you deal with the fundamentalism that is left or do you wash your hands of it and, and schism? And mm -hmm. he's still kind I mean, he, it seems like he's, he's always really wrestling totally. with that, even at the end of the book, he's yeah. like still thinking about that. But, but I'd love to just hear your observations about what the cost of, of that decision is. Like for, for most of the book, he is in the mud mm -hmm. and, and like, what does that actually cost you? Well, I asked one of his sons, you know, because none of his sons is, uh, I'm pretty sure are, are Republicans anymore. And, mm. and, uh, you know, the Trump era has really driven them, like a lot of people out of the party, right? And I asked one of them once, like, why is your dad still a Republican, right? He clearly <laughs> has, a, is having a very hard time with what the Republican party has become. I mean, I even remember, just as an aside, like sitting in his kitchen once, and I think we were like, I think we were eating pizza or something. And he uh he was ranting about like 
Matt Gates or some some outlandish thing that some Republican congressman had done or said. And and at one point he he uh, just like looked at the table in front of him and it was almost like he forgot I was there. And he just said, I mean, how can I be a member of this party? Mm. And then he kind of snapped back at it and he was like, well, but I'm not a Democrat either. And, you know, whatever. But yeah. I feel like it was a, it, the last several years have been a real kind of like a, a, an eye opening experience for him because he feels like so many of the people that he identified with are are leaving and the the people that you know he was proud to associate with in the party are kind of becoming independents or walking away and so the question is do i do the same thing and i asked his son this i was like why is he still a republican and he said he's he has this kind of sense of obligation like he he has to stay and fight for the soul of the party like try mm-hmm. to save it right and there's something really admirable about that but um, I think it's hard for him because as more and more like-minded people leave the party, he's left, like you said, with these people he just doesn't, you know, mm-hmm. agree with, respect. Um, you know, a, a microcosm of this is just the Senate caucus, the Senate Republican caucus. You know, he when he first got to the Senate, he still felt like there were a lot of Republican senators who, uh, even though they supported Trump, like they were willing to work on bipartisan legislation with him and they took their job seriously and they were thoughtful and they weren't out there, you know, like just trying to get on cable news. And he felt like over the course of his time in the Senate, a lot of those people retired or lost or were on their way out and he's kind of left in these caucus meetings with a growing number of senate colleagues that he just fundamentally doesn't respect Mm -hmm. and i think by the end of our our two years doing these interviews he was openly talking to me about leaving the party that that wasn't something he was doing at the beginning but i think by the end it had sort of taken its toll on him and i don't maybe he'll stay the whole time but like you said it takes a toll like it, yeah. it's hard to stay in an institution where you're just increasingly surrounded by people who you just are you, your values are fundamentally misaligned yeah. right uh but there, i but i will also say he's an institutionalist and i think there's there's something admirable about staying and trying you know yeah. instead of just walking away yeah. yeah i appreciated that a lot it was nice to just it, it's such a foreign con- <clears throat> um, context for me, being absorbed in his in in this world of politics and imagining, you know, something as as simple as eating lunch. He talks about, you know, hate like <laughs> dreading these lunches and not knowing where to sit. And like, that is a that is like such a core <laughs> humiliation that every single person can relate to. Totally, that really like triggers the sense of belonging and like, how hungry we are to just know that we have a place mm-hmm. and that we're understood and we're welcome. And and I it it was just a reminder that that's always the cost when you're doing something hard. It that doesn't signify that you're doing something wrong. It probably it probably <laughs> means you're doing something worthwhile worthwhile and and that's just what it looks like it looks like Mm -hmm. feeling like you're out of place probably because you're exercising integrity in a way that is is challenging you're not going with the flow and it it was painful to listen to that that's so well said i have this like one of my hobby horses about religion just it's just kind of a parallel but i like i really believe that religion should be hard in some ways Mm -hmm. right like i i don't believe that there's really any use for a religion that doesn't demand anything and um, and so sometimes when we're talking about, you know, our faith and how to reform it in various ways, I think there are a lot of th- those conversations are really productive. But part of me feels like 
we need to make sure that we hold on to some of the hard things mm-hmm. because it that that's that's the value that's like the divine magic in religion it's forcing us to like reach for something outside of our natural states and yeah. uh and, yeah. and 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 there's value in that it's right? the, it's the death of the false self right like yeah. it like the richard war talks about you cannot maintain this this <clears throat> ego when when <laughs> you're being stripped of of everything the ego values and that's totally. what happens i think when you're alone totally. but if you yeah. do see yourself as a reformer of some kind um in any in any context you sort of necessarily find yourself well there's an article that david brooks wrote i think in mid 2016 called the edge of the inside um and he he based his article on something that richard Rohr had written but what he says is that essentially the person if you imagine sort of the institution or the organization you're a part of as a, as a circle you know and the core loyalists are there in the middle and the outsiders are throwing rocks from from out, outside of it those on the edge of the inside don't enjoy the ideological purity of the insiders or the outsiders yeah. and they also don't enjoy the loyalty of either side mm. and it can be and it can be so taxing but that's it, that's really interesting but it also feels like well it's funny too because david brooks in this is mid 2016 he points to lindsey graham as an example of someone yeah. on the edge of the inside that part of the article didn't necessarily age super well, well but, but he decided to just join yeah. right that that's the thing because that's yeah. the most uncomfortable place to be yes right? so, exactly and so he i think a lot of people on the edge of the inside just end up deciding to go inside or outside yeah. right because yes. that's the the hardest place to be is trying to you know without the loyalty or you know you're mm-hmm. you're kind of just trying to 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 carve out this place for yourself and it's really difficult yes. it is it is yeah. And he says you're a this this work of the edge of inside. You're you're a doorway and you're a bridge. And so you're all there's always tension in that in that outside rim. But it's also it's also just really important work because you see value on on both sides. And you may be the only one who sees yeah. the only ones who are who are really genuinely recognizing value. But it seems like an exhausting place to rest. <laughs> yeah, you know, how, how, su- how sustainable can it really yeah. be? Yes, is the question. Yeah. Um, anyway. Okay, Sorry. let's move on. There, one other um, theme that came up over and over from his very from his mission days was this mm-hmm. this um, idea of fault. It seemed like <clears throat> some of the reckoning was just trying to really grapple with what what uh, role he played in in a number of mm-hmm. just painful things that have happened throughout his life. As early, uh, I mean, the first very poignant one I think is on his mission when he's involved in this really horrific car accident, that, mm-hmm. and he was driving the car, and um, but it, he just kind of has this orientation throughout his life of, of genuinely asking and not being afraid of this question, was it me, you know, and, and how much of this situation was me. And, and so I'd love to hear if any stories come to mind for you about where he was really grappling with that. But also I want to know, what do you think is the power in that question? He just has this orientation that the question should always be asked. Like, was it me? He, and he, and I don't think people who have, who have gotten to know him mainly through his presidential campaigns or whatever would expect that about him because mm-hmm. his public persona is so kind of uh you know shaped by this uh, you know kind of he's like a slick confident yes. businessman right mm-hmm. like he he doesn't seem like somebody who asks himself difficult questions but yeah he really is i mean his journals are filled with entries where he's kind of beating himself up and mm-hmm. ruminating about his mistakes and um it, it, it to the point where sometimes I think it can be counterproductive, and I, really? and, you know, after um, the <laughs> the after the forty seven percent tape came out in in the mm-hmm. twenty twelve election, this is where he was caught at a private fundraiser, kind of disparaging forty seven percent of Americans. Um, you know, he, in his journals for weeks after that, 
almost every day he would go into his journal and just like castigate himself like you know like uh, i am so stupid why did i do this like i've let so many people down i'm gonna lose this election and like it's overwhelmingly depressing what have i done and like some people in his circle actually thought he was like clinically depressed after that he Mm -hmm. couldn't eat or sleep and uh you know he would like ride the elliptical at a punishing pace so it it, so uh, you know all of which is to say he he takes a lot of responsibility for things and for his mistakes. And he does ask himself that question. The only time I think in our two years that I saw him get choked up um, was when he was talking about that accident that uh, from his mission, he uh, was driving this car. He was a, a assistant to the mission president driving a car with a few people from the mission and a black Mercedes swerved into his lane. It crashed head on and the mission president's wife died. And he, you know, was unconscious and they brought him to the hospital, but he, he had minor injuries and recovered. But he told me, and this actually I don't think is in the book, but he, he told me about um, after he got out of the hospital, going back to the mission home with his mission president and, uh, you know, whose wife was now gone. And um, they got into the mission home and the mission president just burst into tears and started sobbing and Mitt started to cry while he was recounting this for me. And like, you could tell he still had some element of like, Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was guilt or, or just, you know, he was so sorry about what had happened, but it, um, it, it just speaks to how seriously he takes his takes responsibility for his mistakes. And I think that theme runs throughout the book. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And I just wonder if I'm I'm always trying to like get this down to a really practical level. And it's if I I feel like if we could all somehow incorporate that um uh that type of attitude into our personal lives, this sort of Lord is it I responsibility taking, if that might not um, you know, improve society in some way. <laughs> no question. Um but yeah. it's a yeah i don't know i don't know what the what the answer is i don't no, think it's I'm, easy to <sighs> say well this is what this is how you do that it's one of the hard things about this book and i've actually struggled to talk about these things is that there are not at least to me obvious structural reforms that could be put in place to <laughs> yeah. incentivize integrity and character in yeah. our public leaders <laughs> this is you know yeah. these these are not i wish that i had like and here is my five point plan to create more <laughs> people who are reckoning with their mistakes in <laughs> right. public mm-hmm. office i really don't know but I, again, I think it part of it comes down to us as just, you know, people, as voters, whatever. Like, I think we should, again, try to push back against the cynical idea that we shouldn't expect this from our leaders. I really think we, but it also is partly about us. Like, we need, if we're going to expect it from our leaders, we have to do it ourselves, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's difficult work, but re- reckoning with your mistakes, being self-aware about when we're kind of justifying, uh, you know, moral compromises, uh, all of that stuff is uh, is is hard work that we have to do if we want our leaders to do it. Yeah, I, that brings up for me sort of the the 2012 election where um, it seems li- like to me, based on the characterization in the book, that Mitt sort of believed that if we could just spend enough time explaining our positions or like if there were enough time for high minded debate, then people would get behind it. Yeah. Get behind this position or this candidacy or whatever it is. And. Um, he was really he was really non-cynical in that way. Like he really had high expectations 
of the American people. Mm. I'm curious to what extent, I guess, you think that that non-cynicism was his was his downfall in that election. Yeah. One of the notes that I got from an editor and uh, one of my friends who read the manuscript early on was he seems naive at some points, yeah. almost to the point where it's like you can't believe he's this naive, <laughs> you know, Um and and I get that, but I I actually think the naivete was like was rooted in this kind of like idealism that yeah. he had about what politics should be, right? Yes. And um, he, you know, he the like you mentioned the exp- uh, the the tendency to explain. There's this saying in politics that when you're explaining, you're losing. Yeah. Um, which is a very cynical <laughs> idea, but kind of true Probably in true, campaigns, yeah. you know. But his problem was that he just loved to explain things. And in fact, I once asked him, like, "What do you think your greatest skill is, or what's your superpower?" And he told me, "My ability to explain things." Oh, and interesting. I, I think it's true. He's very good. I mean, he would be great as like a Harvard Business School professor. He's yeah. very good at like you know simplifying ideas and communicating them but like as a presidential candidate as a politician often the the politically necessary thing to do is to just stick to your message and kind of bulldoze through and he he really believed that like i can just level with with people right Mm -hmm. if i level with voters level with constituents explain in meticulous detail why my plan is different than this plan and it's not a flip-flop or whatever then they'll understand me yeah and (laughs) We don't live in a kind of political environment that really like incentivizes that kind of communication. And um, part of that is on us as pol- yeah. political, you know, consumers. Um, and so and, and part of it is just, you know, on the media infrastructure and everything else. But he he does have a kind of quaint belief in our institutions and in, you know, the the essential goodness and intelligence of the average American. And I think it's, it is really important, even if it hasn't always helped him win office. You know, one of the most dramatic moments of his Senate career was the speech he gave on the night of January 6th, after they had cleared yeah. everybody from, uh, it cleared the protesters and gotten them out. Um, he gave this speech where he just laid into his Senate colleagues who he believed were disingenuously pandering to this idea of the election being stolen, like mm-hmm. Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz. You know, he told me they're way too smart to believe this stuff and they're pretending to believe it because they don't respect our voters, right? They think, and, and he, and he hated the idea because some of, some people were saying that, you know, we're objecting to the certification of the election because we're respecting the people who don't believe this mm-hmm. is real. And while Mitt Romney was giving this speech, he kind of raised his voice to the point where he was yelling and he said, the way to show respect for our voters is to tell them the truth. And he kind of like yells, but I think that there's something powerful in that idea, right? Like, don't, if you respect Americans enough, you respect voters enough, then you'll feel like, you know, you don't have to pander to them. You can just level with them. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, he's done that to varying degrees of success throughout his career, but I think it's an important concept. Yeah. I think that's a, and I think it's an admirable trait too, to sort of like start from a position of believing in people and not, not people only in general, but in specific people. I think, well, this, this sort of brings up for me too, um, when he was, you know, maybe or maybe not really in the running for Secretary of State uh, mm. for that appointment. And I, I I have talked to friends and I know that there has been a narrative that people believe that that was tr- truly just a sort of a PR trap mm-hmm. and that uh, President Trump at the time was just was just looking to humiliate the him. Baiting him. Yeah. yeah. Is that what you ended up believing? No, I I, I 
after kind of going through his journals from that time and interviewing him about, about it and, and doing some other reporting, talking to other people who are involved, I actually do think Trump was seriously considering him for secretary of state, in part because Tr- Romney had been so outspoken uh, as a critic of Trump throughout the 2016 election. I think Trump sort of thought that if he could get Romney to join his administration, it would be a show of sort of subjugation of like one of yeah. his critics, you know? I'll also say that the reason that didn't end up working out is that Trump basically said, you can have the job if you go out there and take back everything you said about Mm -hmm. me and say that actually I'm going to be a great president. And that was just like a bridge too far for Romney and he Mm -hmm. couldn't do it. And that I think that's ultimately why he didn't get the job. Maybe he wouldn't have otherwise, but I think that that whole process was real. There were definitely people in Trump's camp who wanted him to, uh, to, to get the job. There were others who didn't. And Afterward, they kind of spun this narrative that like, oh, we were just toying yeah, with okay. him. We I were see. trying to embarrass him. Okay. Yeah. So he he comes back to Utah. And, and I'm thinking about this moment you talk about. He I, It must be like a town hall meeting or something. And somebody asked this question about if 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 he wins, what will he do? to Or will he yeah. shut down the five the, major news? The New York Times and CNN. And, and yeah, yeah. Yes. And it's like this shocking moment. Mm-hmm. And you kind of see this righteous in- indignation flare up in him again, which he has now and then. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes I think maybe it's just raw anger. And yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure how righteous, but like you see these flares of a real person that I think everybody is always hungry to see from him. And and um, and he has this moment with this woman like, I know that is mm-hmm. that is the opposite of what I'm trying to say and do. Yeah. And and but I, I wonder just for you as a journalist, if you are you feeling that there is this sentiment that there is something wrong with with journalism in general and that like people aren't even aren't valuing yeah. uh, the fact that we honor the that that we honor free speech and we're going to protect our enemies so to speak and their and their yeah. right to to write and speak and I included that story in part I mean in part because it, it did show for Romney, it was kind of a clarifying moment where he saw what he considered the kind of the trickle down effect of Donald Trump to mm-hmm. to the point where, you know, ordinary people in Utah um, who had once probably been Mitt Romney supporters are now, you know, demanding that he toss the First Amendment aside, and, you know, shut yeah. down all these news organizations. And so for him, that was kind of a frightening, uh, you know, realization. But I also included it selfishly, because <laughs> as a journalist, I think it's really important. I think that, you know, I, I could give a whole hour long speech about this, and I won't bore your <laughs> listeners with it. But I do think that um, I understand all the the complaints about the media, the news media journalism, like we, we get we we do not always get it right. And mm-hmm. there are all kinds of biases, some of them political, some of them cultural or coastal or whatever, that are factored into national media. But I've spent the last 12 years in newsrooms, and I know that most journalists are just normal people trying to do their jobs, and they really are not engaging in some kind of massive conspiracy. They're not trying to, you know, spread lies. They're really mm-hmm. trying to report the news, right, and explain what's happening in the world. And um I, I think that it is we are in a moment where um there's extremely high levels of distrust toward institutions yeah. of all kind and the press is one of them. And what worries me, I've written pieces about this, is that it's really hard for a pluralistic democracy like ours to function without some kind of common set of facts that we're all starting from, mm-hmm. right? And we're in this moment where 
the way that, you know, um, the algorithms work on social media and the way that there are, you know, people are able to kind of pick and choose what news outlets they, they turn to. We're all starting from our own sets of facts, you know, and it makes it very difficult to reach any kind of consensus on any issue because we don't even start from the same reality. Yeah. And and I think that that's dangerous. So what's your five point plan? To, <laughs> to fix to that? that one, yeah. um, I, I actually have more thoughts on that <laughs> yeah. than, than the other one. I mean, look, uh, you know. I, I, I will start with just the advice that I give to people who ask me, like, what should I what what news outlets should I read to uh, to, you know, get the fairest coverage? And I think the answer is that, like, you shouldn't have one or two mm-hmm. news outlets that you you read. You should read a wide variety of things. But the the attitude that I always tell people to take into news consumption is be skeptical of any headline or story that too perfectly validates your own worldview, right? Mm-hmm. When you when you see a headline that just makes you feel like you're so smart <laughs> and everyone who disagrees mm-hmm. with you is dumb and I've been yeah. proven right now, you should probably go check to see if other news outlets have reported that story the same mm-hmm. way because there are is there are entire cottage industries of of outlets people creating content and news that is designed to make you feel like you're right. And that's kind of not a healthy way to, to consume news or to understand the world. Yeah. Yeah, That makes sense. There's this, um, map that you talk about that that he's got in his office but becomes sort of obsessed with like it was a curiosity and then it just becomes his total obsession i can't remember what it's called the, his, the, the histo map histo map which <laughs> yes. is which is empires throughout mm-hmm. time and and how long they were ruling the world yeah. and then their fall and and so of course he has this fascination but but it feels like a really heavy thing to to for us to be reckoning with at mm-hmm. the same time that you know we're we're really we're we're asking questions that haven't that we haven't asked it at least in our lifetime. Like you know what what's the point of the news? <laughs> like how right. how are we should, like having that? Should in we a, have a First Amendment? Right. Like yes. what's what's the point of that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. We grew up with that exceptionalism that that totally. you talk about Mitt Romney having, and and it's scary to to imagine that you know there were there are countries that that survived and ruled for nine hundred years and then that was the end and mm-hmm. and like how seriously should we be taking these these the fact that we're we're re-examining values and and distrusting each other on such a deep level that we we can't agree on the same numbers, like we can't agree on the same facts. So I guess maybe that's part of the reckoning. I imagine that this subtitle was multifaceted, mm-hmm. and of course Definitely. Romney's reckoning. But is that part of this the the message that you're hoping readers no, are thinking about? No question. I mean, there there's the personal reckoning that happened with yeah. Mitt Romney, but there's also this reckoning with what's happening to our country. Yeah. And in one of our first interviews. Um, Romney told me that, you know, he actually showed me that map in his office and he said, look, look at the, the whole span of human history, all these civilizations with very few exceptions. Um, the most powerful civilizations in the world, the world has been ruled by autocrats of some kind, right? Dictators, kings, kaisers, emperors, rulers, Mm -hmm. right? Like that, that is the default in human history. Um, and what we have been experiencing for the last couple hundred years in America is an exception. And it pushes against human nature in a lot of ways. It pushes against the sweep of history. And he, he believes, and I, I agree with him that we have taken for granted that this is just going to continue. Yes. He thinks that American democracy is much more fragile than we realize, that the way things are going right now in our, our politics, that it is not clear that 
you know, a large enough number of Americans believe in core, the core idea of democracy or of pluralism of living in a diverse society with people who disagree with you and just kind of being okay with that. Right. And, um, I think he's right. I mean, and, and I think part of the reason he agreed to do this book was that he wanted to kind of issue a warning. You know, mm-hmm. he had seen inside the Senate, inside, um, you know, American politics over the last 30 years, a depth of cynicism and hypocrisy that he thinks is now kind of eroding trust in the very yeah. idea of democracy. And, um, and he thinks it's important to, to document that. And that I, that's part of why I wanted to write that book. I love that. What does our, what does our Latter-day Saint-ism have to offer the world right now? Like what, what do you see, you know, in midst life, in your own faith, in our community generally that could, that could be part of the reckoning and the healing that yeah. is becoming more urgent? Are we going white horse here? <laughs> very, I think that this is the right place for it. Um, <laughs> by the way, I, I landed in Salt Lake City yesterday and walked by a like a restaurant bar in the airport called the White Horse. Like, Have you guys seen that? What is what is that I an allusion so. to the White it Horse prophecy? It has, to be, it has to be. It's a very good, very serious question, by the way. It's but like what yeah, what does our community and our, our faith okay. have to offer? Yeah. yeah. So I mean, like I, I mentioned the kind of the belief in the sanctity of the Constitution yeah. democracy. I think yeah. that that's one thing. There's another thing, though. One of the early on in the process of uh, of doing this book with Romney, he, he said that, you know, one of the reasons I think uh, I've decided to do this with you is that, uh, you know, it helps that you get the Mormon thing. And I didn't totally know what he meant. Like, I was like, yeah, sure. I mean, I'm glad. And and part of it was we could use a shorthand with each other. He didn't have to explain to his biographer, this is what a bishop does. This is what a stake president does. I I knew how missions worked, all that. But the other thing was both of us, and I didn't realize how important this would be to understanding him until kind of later on, but both of us uh, grew up Mormon in places where there weren't very many Mormons. Mm-hmm. So he grew up in Michigan um, and I grew up in Massachusetts. And um, he said, growing up in our faith outside of Utah, and I actually think this can be true of people in Utah too, but he said, you get used to being different in ways that are important to you. Mm-hmm. And I think that in some ways that's been the theme of, especially this last chapter of his career, right? Being willing to do unpopular things because they're rooted in some kind of deeper conviction That is what has made this last chapter of his career so inspiring to me and why I wanted to write the book. It's also, I think, something that we need a lot more of in in politics, right? Be different in ways that are important to you. Don't be different for its own sake, right? I mean, you can, that's (laughs) fine. But like, but like identifying what what matters most and then being willing to kind of stand behind it when all the pressure is on you to, to, to bend. Um, I think if we had more political leaders, more elected officials, more voters, more people willing to do that, we would be in, in much better shape as a country. That's really good. Yeah. This thank is really, so much, this is really yeah. great work, McKay. Hey, yeah. thanks thank for doing it. Thanks Guys, for talking. Thank you. Awesome. I'm, I'm a big fan of both of you oh. and of the, the oh, podcast. Oh, thank thanks you. so much. We're proud to claim you. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this conversation with McKay Coppins. And a big thanks to McKay, of course, for coming on the show. You can find his book, Romney, A Reckoning, on Amazon or wherever books are sold. 
And if Faith Matters content is resonating with you and you get the chance, we would love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on. We read all of the reviews and it really helps us to get the word out about Faith Matters and we appreciate the support. Thanks again for listening. And as always, you can check out more at faithmatters.org.